Hey, it's Richie Siegel, the founder of Loose Threads. I hope you, your family, and your team are hanging in there during these challenging times. In our new podcast series, Offense vs. Defense, we're talking with leaders across the consumer economy about how they're managing their business, balancing playing offense with playing defense. Defense is about cutting back as much as possible to preserve cash. Offense means making calculated investments and taking risks to put your company in a stronger position. Just like in sports, a team can't win by only playing defense. The companies that can weather this storm and make opportunistic investments will emerge in a stronger position than where they entered. This week, we spoke with a Burmeister co-founder of Outlier, a menswear brand pushing the limits of materials and performance. We discussed how the brand has handled supply chain woes, invested more in social media, and struck a balance between customer communication about when to spend money on clothing and when to save it. Here's how Abe and his team have managed the crisis so far. It happened kind of in the middle of trade show season. So I flew out to outdoor retailer trade show in Denver and like there was a little edge there and there's like a China section. I still went there and, you know, certain people couldn't come and like there was just this little energy, but it was all very much like, oh, it's China. And that didn't really affect us. We have some supply chain stuff in China, but not a huge amount. And so it didn't feel material to the business, but it felt material in a small sense. Like you could feel that like rising. And that was like mid-January, late January. Then a couple of weeks later, I went to Paris. And that's like it sort of amplified up there. And it still wasn't big in Paris. I hadn't officially been identified in Paris at that time. Or Milan even at that. I mean, maybe retroactively they have, but there wasn't talk of it, right? But you could feel the energy and the lack of China, I think there were no uh, Chinese exhibitors or something like that. But it still wasn't material at all. But materially, sometime in March, we started feeling like the creep and reading things. And I remember personally like reading an account of a nurse in Italy on Twitter or something. And I was like, oh my God, well, that's when you like stop feeling like a bunch of like weird news stories that didn't fully make sense and started feeling like, oh, wow, this is happening and it's coming. So we started preparing a little bit, but, it, you know, again, we were like kind of blindsided like everybody else. Like there were little pieces of preparation. I was like, all right, let's get masks. Like the receiving of uh, returns we do in-house. The warehouse handles all the shipping, separate third party. Because we're very high in touch with our returns, we let people wear the product, keep them for 45 days. Like it's, it kind of has to be in-house. And so it was like, all right, like how do we handle things coming in? We started quarantining the boxes for two or three days you know just because people were uncomfortable handling them it was like coming stuff coming back in transferring but we didn't do any like big proactive things i think i cut a color out of the fall range and we started sort of putting off making a couple decisions but like we we certainly weren't hyper prepared and then like march was wild because we actually had a really good march including the lockdown periods we had a lot of product coming in, right? It's like from a inventory standpoint, it was kind of the worst possible time for this to happen because March is when all the spring stuff really starts loading in. So you're kind of like at a low cash and high inventory point, but it's also good product that's exciting. So when we started locking down, we kind of accelerated our whole schedule based around what we had. And the first week was like blockbuster, but that's partly because we, through a discount, we were like, oh my God, we need to stockpile cash. Like, let's throw a discount in here. Let's go wild. And so that week was huge. And then we're on a weekly drop schedule, but we're trying to pace the big ones every two weeks. And so 
we accelerated the big drop a week because we didn't know if we'd be able to keep shipping or what those situations were. And that was still quite a big one because, you know, all numbers look different now. You know, eight weeks of this, like, I just look at numbers that would have looked horrendous for what I was hoping to do in April and May that now look pretty good. I'm like, okay, that's what it is. But that's after a lot of adjusting. The warehouse stayed open, which, you know, it's a loophole. What we sell is not essential to anyone, but warehousing was classified as an essential business. And so, and that's something we evaluated and we're like, did we have any impact on the warehouse's decision to stay open? And we decided that it's pretty clear we didn't. And watching their tenor change over those times was really interesting. And there was a certain point, it was actually when Amazon announced they were hiring people at a higher rate, it became a pure business thing on the warehouse side thing. You could just see their thought process shift from like, okay, like how do we balance this out in the best possible way to be like, how do we survive? And that's when I realized that was like a classic Amazon brutal PR maneuver, right? Where they got great PR and, and at first you're like, great, they're paying the workers more, they're hiring, like these are all good things. And then as soon as we started talking to the warehouse, third-party fulfillment, people were like, wait, wow, this is actually them like using this crisis as an opportunity to try and like stomp on the competition, which is wild. I mean, I guess, you know, it's business on some levels, but that was a, an eye-opener. In terms of them um, like stealing employees? Yeah, that's essentially what the warehouse was like. You know, we have employees who are scared to come in and now all of a sudden they might just go to Amazon instead. And we don't use cheap labor. That's one of the things we do. Obviously, like we don't like to overpay, but we like to pay a fair wage to people. And so I'm not opposed to the rate for this going up. You know, obviously it ends up getting passed through to the customer at the end of the day. So it's something to think about. So when Amazon announced it, I was like, cool. It was like almost felt too good. And then I started thinking through. And again, it's, you know, it's Amazon, so they play hardball. Towards the end of March, we kept full staff and everybody was like doing these big zooms and we realized that even if we got through it all there was no way like we'd be able to emerge from this lockdown state at anything close to what we were just because product was going to disappear right like we've literally like if you look at the straight up product and inventory and the math there there's just we can't be the same size company and that's without even taking account what happens to demand so that was really really hard and so we ended up having to furlough half the staff we're still paying their health insurance and right now with the situation they're not in a bad shape because there's like all the different programs in place right now that was super brutal really really hard to do and then we kind of restructured ourselves in this like leaner half size unit and april you know became like oh we can start thinking about weeks instead of thinking about days but you know it's crazy because a month before that we had been thinking about years, right? So it's like kind of a reset. And we have some projection on like sort of, it's not really projections anymore. They're like scenarios for like what might happen going out, what products like are still in the pipeline that might emerge and like which ones like are worth pursuing and under what circumstances, you know, there's still potentially summer product. Well, some of it's like already in the pipeline, right? It's like once it's cut, this piece of fabric's cut. There's nothing left to do but finish it into what it was supposed to be. So it's really a lot of just constant juggling and rescheduling and dealing with the circumstances and kind of watching the supply chain side is really up in the air. You know, Italy's kind of reopening this week, right? But the other weird thing with Italy is they actually closed much later than you would think. 
because every country does their lockdowns differently. And so there were mills that are in Lombardy. I remember just looking it up. I'd get an email from them and be like, we're open. And I was like, isn't Italy shut down completely? Isn't Lombardy shut down? And then I'd go look at them on the map and be like, what's going on? You know, and that changed and they eventually all shut down and Portugal semi shut down. Like there's not a lot of movement, but a lot of those factories are based in these kind of small kind of towns up in the mountains and stuff. And I think they just seal up the town kind of the way China does with their gigantic communities clustered around factories. So that stuff's moving. But when you're dealing with a global supply chain, like it's tricky because, you know, one or two pieces go missing and you got to figure out what the substitutes are and all that, that stuff. And then New York is like another wild thing. So one of the things that we started thinking about really quickly, it was like mass, like everybody else, but you know, we're outlier. Like there's a lot of people that are like, oh, let's make a fabric mask out of like this basic pattern. We didn't see the point in that. The point of outliers to try to make products that are different, that are materially better, right? So we went to our materials and we're like, oh, can we figure out how to make a mask that's actually, you know, more comfortable to wear or filters better or is easier to put on and sort of focused on that. And so we've been slowly playing around in that realm. But one of the things we realized really quickly is that nobody in New York wants to be open right now. And the people that are like got requisitioned by the government, which is cool actually, and I'm happy for them, right? There's New York City has an order in for like over 100,000 hospital gowns that are going out to whatever's left of the garment district that wants to be open, which is super cool. But it like, where are all these masks coming from? And a lot of them are pre-orders, which is a little sketchy. And then a lot of them are coming from like LA factories, brands in LA that own their own factories and were able to pivot and they're not hit as badly out there. So to their credit, they handled the situation a bit better, I guess. In terms of like the product assortment, did you think, or did you have like the opportunity from a supply chain perspective to think about like doing more stuff that works at home or like the loungewear? We talked about masks a little bit, or is that like such a radical shift that it was harder maybe than it sounds? I mean, we can, it's much harder than it sounds because we're very custom, right? Like we order our own fabrics, like some of them are developed for us. And so from that standpoint, if you're going to start with ordering a custom fabric and going all the way through, that's a six month process. So it's like, yeah, we could have homeware for, you know, six months from May is what November, right? So it's like, there was homeware slated for November, which is cool. And then the fabric mill has to be open and they have to be able to deliver it. And the rest of the pieces might have to be shuffled around, but you can work with it. But if you're a material driven company and the materials aren't there, then you can't do anything. If the garment district was more open or if we owned our own factory, it'd be a slightly different story because we are sitting on a bunch of fabrics as well. So mm. does that change your thinking about either being material driven or the value of having a factory or some version of it? Yeah, it certainly does. Like, you know, I, for the longest time, had no interest in running a factory and I still don't, but I see the value more like in a larger scale. Like it really, you know, drove home like the need for like having like a resilient infrastructure. The clothing business as a whole is pretty lean, with the exception of like the big luxury players, right? People aren't building a lot of like extra buffer into their operations. The margins are quite good, like from a pure raw standpoint. But once you go into marketing and expenditures and everything like shipping and returns, right, like they end up very lean. So how do we build this to a more robust place? And it's tricky because like 
as soon as you try and put like more margin in there, you're going to end up with somebody else who's like, oh, there's more space for me to slip in, right? That's the nature of the structure that we built right now. So it's interesting and like, you know, it's challenged the way I think about product and like our development cycles. And, you know, we were eyeing physical retail and now that's mm. a whole new universe, right, to think about. And who knows what's going to happen there. It could be an incredible opportunity to like get into like great storefronts or it could be like that was the knockout blow and like it's all going online, which is would be good for us. How is your approach to like customer communication evolved during this time in terms of, I think generally you guys are relatively transparent when it comes to the communication, obviously not like on this level. How did you think about like, what do we tell and communicate? What do we hold back? And how is that different from what happens like in a quote unquote normal period? I mean, we're always quite transparent, especially on the Reddit. So, you know, we have this full like active Reddit community and we're, we're out there we're participating. We're pretty open there. And then we do Instagram Live every week as well. And so we're pretty open there. And, you know, it's just kind of a default to openness that we work with. It was really tricky in the early days when people were like panicked and there's kind of a crisis. Like, how do you achieve the right tone and like communicate? And, you know, on one hand, we're like trying to survive and I want to pay, you know, the entire staff's paychecks. So it was like, so it was very much like, oh, how does the company survive? How do the people, the community, like, our internal people do and then how to the actual customer community, how does it all do and survive? And so that was just a really tricky balancing act. Like how do we communicate and like make it clear? And like, so a lot of it was just being really upfront and being like, look, like we're doing this, but if you're like in a period of financial stress or you're worried about like what's going on, do not buy this product. Like don't, take advantage of this right like there's crazy stuff going on i mean one of the things you know we've shut down our returns completely because we can't process them so we had to communicate that to customers and then there's a certain set of people and we you know we had to like evaluate each one individually and try and figure out what's going on or like trying to return things for very legitimate reasons like they're like oh i just got furloughed and now i need to like make sure i have enough to pay for groceries and i just bought all these like clothing items that now seem really expensive so there's a lot of balancing there and figuring out how to deal with that situation and help people out as best as possible too. I didn't see any other brand that suggested people not to spend if they can't, but it seems like that wasn't like a bold thing for you guys to decide to say. It seemed pretty logical, right? Yeah. I mean, that just seems human to me. Like <laughs> I, you know, I write all the emails, right? And so we're communicating to customers and we're like, we're still open, we're shipping. And like, you know, at that point I didn't even know and I still don't know if like the warehouse should have been open, right? So it's very dicey communication. And then it's like, look, yeah, we're running a discount. We never run discounts, but like, don't buy a pair of pants if you're like worried about like how to pay the rent. That's just human. And that's the last thing we wanted. And also like even on a business standpoint, we don't know when we're going to take returns again. And like if somebody buys something and then realizes two weeks later, that was a stupid move, like, well, they're going to want to return it and we don't have the ability to process that. And obviously, we're going to process it like once we can, extending all the terms and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like you got to deal with people on a human level first. And business has a lot of hard realities, but you know, we're people first. Have there been areas where you have, I guess, continued to invest either from a time perspective or monetary perspective as all this has happened in terms of like, it's obviously logical to cut back as much as you can, but are there places where you wanted to go deeper or have gone deeper? We actually played around a bunch. It was like kind of an opportunity in some ways to play around with 
certain marketing things. We're not a hugely marketing-driven company, mostly on social. And we have a drop model, right? We really rely a lot on like there being something fresh and exciting and new product-wise every week. And then we're like at this situation where you know, we had a certain stash of products, you know, like maybe a month worth of products backed up that we kind of pieced out for a month. And then it was kind of like, we're going to be out of product. Like we have to work with what we're sitting on and our sort of like anti-marketing strategy with that kind of stuff. These are core products and we're just going to release new exciting products in smaller numbers. And that generates more energy and excitement and people come through. And then like what they end up walking out with is, you know, one of the core products. Right. But as soon as that flash of the new is gone, like we have to think about, all right, how do we take this like more staid product? and talk about it for the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, right? And like, how do we keep that interesting? So we played around a bunch on social and we created some interesting stuff like Fit Check Fridays is the thing we started doing where we're like asking customers to like submit like fits around a certain product. And I'm kind of averse to things like contests and stuff, but when the structure makes sense, it makes sense. So like there's a reason for people to submit these things beyond just vanity or whatever, like you can win stuff. But at the same time, it provides value to everybody. It's not just like free marketing for us. They like by getting pictures of people in every single size, like on these sort of social media campaigns, like generate a wide range of fits that people can look at the product and be like, Oh, like that person has like a body like mine. And like, I could wear it like that. That's been super helpful and interesting. That was like the first time that I feel like I've seen the outlier community in a sense. Yeah, it's funny because we have so much community like centered around Reddit, which is so unvisual. And there are like what I wore today threads in our Reddit and things like that. But even like then you have to be really committed because you go in there, and you don't see the pictures, you got to like click on every link. And we've always seen the Instagram sort of crowd as like being not that overlapping. There's not a huge overlap between the people on Instagram and the people on Reddit. And then there's certain people that like have literally told us like on Reddit that the only reason they have Instagram is because we do our lives or something, which is just wild to me. I'm like, how can you not have Instagram in this day and age? But there's still people who are like, yeah, I don't do Instagram. And, and I usually just like make a burner account. This is where culture happens live. I don't love Mark Zuckerberg. I don't love Facebook. I wish there was a better platform, but this is where the people are. And it's where culture is happening. So that's another thing we just did, which was super fun. We did a, a live auction. We had a, a certain type of product that we've struggled with for a long time, which are like super artisanal products, like usually built on top of like something that we've created. So we had been working since last year with this incredible marbling artist. Um, she usually does marbling for books. Her name's Cheryl Oppenheim. And she had been doing scars for us or, and the bandanas. And that type of product, like the way that marbling works, you make literally one at a time. And so what we ended up with these beautiful, really expensive one-off products, like in a pandemic, unprecedented unemployment, right? So we're like, how do we make this work? What do we do with it? Like, and finally, we're like, all right, let's make a charity auction. So we did charity. We picked this very local charity called the Hungry Monk Rescue Truck that's out in Queens, working in some of the hardest hit communities. You know, it's kind of like the epicenter of the epicenter. And we just did three bandanas to test, but it did super well. It was super fun to do. And part of the inspiration from that was watching how like nightlife has happened on Instagram. You know, there's the versus beat battles and there's like people throwing parties, DJing live and it's fun and exciting. And it's like culture at scale, 
right? That's what Instagram has that's undeniable. And so we do lives 1230 every Tuesday, New York time. They're great. But every time we try to find other ones, you know, they're tied around a product. They're anchored to something physical and they make them great. We've never been able to like find another reason to do other ones that had the same level of excitement and same kind of anchoring. So this gave us the ability to do that and it was super fun. So hopefully we're doing more of that. I'm curious what the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned during this time has been. I mean, the cheapest lesson is the one that I sort of knew already, but it's be honest and be upfront. Like there's no reason to hide what's going on. And people respond to that kind of like they can see it and sense it. And it costs you nothing except for maybe your pride. And the most expensive lesson, I doubt it's going to wind up being the most expensive lesson, but the whole PPP thing was wild. You know, we like bank with Citibank because we don't do that much banking stuff and they're great for international and we do like a lot of international wire transfers and stuff, but they're not great in any other way locally. But, you know, when we started, like no bank knew how to deal with e-commerce. So it didn't really matter. They were just there and we just used them. They had the tools and again, the international side was pretty good, but they were so unprepared to deal with this PPP. And I was like, Oh, wait, like maybe even if we went to a more smaller business oriented bank, they still probably wouldn't be set up to deal with the type of cash flow, right? Like we have no receivables. We're an e-commerce company. We don't have receivables and banks hate that, but we should have gone to like a smaller one that was more set up to deal with businesses like us. So we still don't know. I think we technically are supposed to get some of this next slice of PPP, but who knows? That's a material lesson that at the bare minimum, we can put like a very substantial number on that. Hopefully it doesn't cost us less in the long run, but it definitely costs us that in the short run. But I suspect there's going to be like order of magnitude bigger you know, lessons yeah. that are going to come out of it. Of all the changes you have made as a business, as a leader, et cetera, what do you think is going to stay or what do you want to keep basically? Assume again in the coming months, your life goes back to some sort of normal, obviously with some changes, but what developments or processes or so forth have changed in the last two months that you actually think are positive and worth keeping well beyond being in a state of crisis? I think we built some like really interesting stuff on the social side, you know, like forced us to look at a side of our business that we weren't, I don't think doing badly at, but like, you know, Instagram had gotten kind of boring for us for a while. And it was sort of this challenge where like, everybody's there, it's the place, but like doesn't have the energy that it once had. And this forced us to like, look at it in a new light and build some new processes and give it some like refreshment and put some sort of rhythm and pattern into it and I think that's gonna like stay for sure.